All right, if you've got a Bible, if you want to turn with me to John chapter 20, we're going to be in John chapter 20. And uh, while you're turning there, I'll just say you can go ahead and get comfortable. Or if you need to get up and stretch, you can do that because we're going to be reading the whole chapter uh, together this morning. Uh, But last week we looked at the death and burial of Jesus Christ. And most stories usually end there, but uh, it's not that way with Jesus. And so this morning together we are looking at and reading about his resurrection. So John chapter 20, starting with verse 1. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They've taken away the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciples, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture, that he must rise from the dead, Then the disciples went back to their homes. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. And they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, They've taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. And having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. And Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. And Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabbani, which means teacher. And Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. And then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven of them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see his hand, in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger in the, into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. And although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. And then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands, and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. And Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name.
Last week, when we talked about the crucifixion of Jesus, we actually started back in Genesis. And I want to start uh, back in the Old Testament again to get a little bit of an understanding of why it matters what Jesus says and does here. Uh, we talked last week about Abraham, that God came to him and, and said, I'm going to make you the father of this great nation. Through you and your wife, Sarah, you're going to give birth to a son, and through them, um, you'll have this great nation, this group of people called the Israelites. And this is how God has said, I'm going to make myself known to the rest of the world. I'm going to use a group of people to do it. They're going to be distinct. They're going to be set apart. And because of who they are, the way they live, and how different they are, the people will know about who I am. They're God. Uh, well, if you fast forward a bit, uh, the nation is formed, this big group of people, the Israelites, they live in bondage in, in Egypt for hundreds of years, and then God rescues them using Moses. They then wander in the desert, and as they're wandering the desert, on their way to the promised land, uh, God begins to give Moses instructions for his people, the law, how they are to live so that they can be distinct for him. He also talks to them about this idea of, presents them with this idea of having priests. And he says to Moses, your brother Aaron is going to be uh, kind of the head of these priests. And the job of a priest, of all of this group of, this group of guys, is going to be, to be a bridge. The priest is a bridge between God and people, and between people and God. He brings God to the people, his presence, and he brings the people, their needs, their concerns, uh, their sins, uh, their sacrifices to God. Um, on their behalf. Now, when, uh, when God is giving Moses these instructions on how to do this, how there can be priests and what they are to be like, he says to Moses at one point, and we read about it in the book of Numbers, he says, I want you to tell Aaron something and I want you to have him tell the people. And this is what Moses says to Aaron to tell the people. We read this in Numbers chapter six. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to Aaron and his sons saying, thus you shall bless the people of Israel and you shall say to them, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. This sums up the covenant that God has with his people. Uh, he says, would you, would you say this blessing over the people? And what it says is it says if basically what they can hope to have in God. Why would I want to be one of God's people? Why would I want to be connected with him, reconciled with him? Because of what he promises us. He says that he will bless you and keep you. He will make his face shine upon you. He'll be gracious to you. Meaning, even from the beginning, he's going to give you more than you deserve. He'll lift up his countenance upon you, and ultimately what God will give you is peace. Now, the most important word that we read about here, apart from Lord, is peace. To the Israelites, this word peace, which in the Hebrew is shalom, is very important. It, it sums up the goal for them, the, 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 the trajectory for their whole life for a Jewish person. It is uh, something that the Jewish community is built upon. This idea of attaining peace, this sort of uh, 
presence of God, this completeness in God. Uh, you read about it again and again and again in the Old Testament. Another example is uh, fast forward a bunch, or actually, sorry, rewind a bunch, and you have one of the forefathers of Israel. Uh, you, have, uh, you have Jacob, and he's one of the guys who gave birth to more people, that gave birth to more people so that this big group of people could exist, right? And he, at one point, falls asleep and uh, apparently, if you use a rock for a pillow, you have crazy dreams, because that's what he does. He falls asleep and uses a rock for a pillow, not his arm, but a rock, and he, uh, he has a dream. And in the dream, he, uh, he, there's a ladder, and Jacob climbs the ladder, Jacob's ladder, and he goes to heaven, and he's in the presence of God in this dream. And when he comes back, he wants to remember the significance of the place he was in because of what he experienced. That for that brief moment, Jacob got to experience, even just in a dream state, what it was like to be in the presence of God. And here is what Jacob says in Genesis 28. It says, he called the name of that place Bethel, but the name of the city was Luz at first. So it was already named something, and he said, I'm going to call it something different because, it, because there's significance to me now. Then Jacob made a vow saying, if God will be with me and will keep me in, his, in this way that I go and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. So he also uses this word peace, and there's a connection between coming to his father's house and being in the very presence of God in heaven itself, because as we read about in the New Testament, being in the presence of God in heaven is ultimately going to our father's home that he's prepared for us, being a part of his household. Uh, Jacob is experiencing for a brief moment what it is to be in the presence of God, and he uses this word as a way of describing it. Peace, shalom. Shalom means completeness. It means satisfaction. It means peace. For a Jewish person, this was the foundation of your entire society. It was the desire that you had as a people to experience completeness. It was the goal in your life. You wanted shalom. It was what you wanted for your friends and your family. It's what you didn't want for your enemies. And a lot of shalom had to do with being at home, being at a place where you could rest that was yours. Like ultimately, we're meant to be in the presence of God forever. Shalom had a lot to do with this idea of not wandering. And this is why in the Old Testament, especially we read that being an exile, being a sojourner, being a wanderer, being cast out is a big deal. It's a punishment. One of the main forms of punishment was simply being sent out and having to wander because those people could never experience peace, shalom, completeness. This concept of shalom is everything for the people of God. It is complete blessing. It is complete fulfillment. It is complete joy. It is every kind of human flourishing is summed up in this concept, shalom. It was a greeting to one another because it was what you wanted for each other, wished for each other, blessed each other with. Peace is enjoyed in Yahweh's presence. And it is because peace means reconciliation. It means being made right with someone else, being able to be on good standing with them. Now, uh, if the Jewish people wanted this above all else, 
we know what that's like because even though we don't live for shalom in our culture today, we live for something similar. Because if you're an American, you're entitled to certain inalienable rights. Inalienable? Inalienable? Right? No, inalienable. Okay. Chris says so, so I believe him. (laughs) Nothing about being a lawyer means he should know the answer to that, but I'm going to look at him every time. I guess there's something about being a lawyer, yeah. Anyway, we are entitled to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Now, two of those three things, you already kind of, hopefully, you kind of have if you're living in America. You have a life, you have the right to life, you have the right to be alive and to have your life. Uh, You're like, I'm alive, okay, good, you got that one covered. You have the right to liberty, right? We experience and enjoy liberty, which is freedom, we live in America. So we have life, we have liberty. Why do we have those two things? What can we do with them? What is the goal to now pursue happiness? Okay, we live for this end. We live for this goal, to pursue happiness. So we know what shalom is like because this is what drives and motivates us all, is we're grateful for living in the country we live in at times when we feel like it is conducive to us pursuing our happiness. And if we ever feel like the country is at any point not conducive to that, we get frustrated, we get angry. Why? Because that's our right. Life is filled with strife and toil and worry and uncertainty. And yet, the Old Testament tells us to the Jewish people, God tells them that in him they will have an end to those things. They will have shalom. And in doing so, they will have the object with which they, they seek, they aim their whole lives at. This is the goal of life. This is why it's so significant that Jesus, when he is resurrected and appears before his disciples, says this to them. We read in John 20 that Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. He will say this phrase again and again and again to his disciples. He will say this very thing to them. Of all the things that he could say to them, like I'm back and here I am and it's good to see you. He says, peace be with you. Why? Is it because he's into nice greetings? This is just the way that people greet each other and that's all there is to it? No. Because just as shalom means a specific thing in the Old Testament in the Hebrew language, this word for peace that Jesus uses here, Irenea, means the same thing. It's the New Testament Greek equivalent of this Old Testament concept. It's when the people of God talked about it in the New Testament early church times. It means peace, prosperity, and it means success. It doesn't just mean feeling happy, feeling good, feeling calm, right? And and it's easy to think that. The disciples are going through a lot. And so, of course, Jesus shows up and he says, peace, peace, it's okay. Everything's good now. Things are okay. Feel good. Calm down. It's going to be fine. No, Jesus is telling them something that goes all the way back to the beginning for the Jewish people, which is what? He is saying to them, you are now finally at peace. Now that I have died and been resurrected, now that I have conquered death itself, good news. And it is the first news that he, that he greets them with. You now can have peace. 
you are reconciled with God. You now can hope to be complete. There is no greater news to a Jewish person than this news. Just like if someone came to you and said, you can now be happy and fulfilled here. When we strive our whole lives for that very thing, what Jesus tells them is the best news that he could give them. Now, peace in the New Testament, we read about it. Even in Romans, it says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So Romans, which is really a presentation of the gospel, uses the same word that Jesus is using. And how is peace defined? It's justification through faith in Jesus. So when he says they have peace, he's saying because of what I've done, Because of the work that I did and the conquering of death, and now that I'm resurrected, you're now able to be justified by faith. You get real peace. You get shalom. Now, this is a time in their lives when this matters a lot because they are as low as people can possibly be. We read in the beginning of this account about Mary, who, uh, you see, Jesus dies um, on what we call Good Friday. Well, the next day is the Sabbath, and you're not allowed to travel on the Sabbath, which means they couldn't go see Jesus' body the next day on the Sabbath. And so the body is put into a tomb, and they just have to wait. So they go, presumably, to the upper room, where they had had dinner with him before, and they hide Well, Mary, being the one who seems to be the most eager to go visit Jesus' body, pay her respects, she goes out when it's still dawn, technically not really supposed to go that soon, but she's pushing it because she really wants to see Jesus' body. And normally a tomb doesn't have anything in front of it because there isn't a lot of concern that people are going to, you know, steal a body from it. But in this case, uh, the guards have put a huge stone in front of the tomb. And as she gets there, she sees that this stone has actually been rolled away. And she comes to discover that in her grief, when all she wanted to do was visit Jesus, to pay her respects to him, to experience him in some last way, they've even taken his body from her. They've taken it so that her and his followers can't even spend time with the body of Jesus. She then goes and, uh, upon finding of his resurrection, tells the disciples, they go back to this room, they shut the door, they lock it, And they hide. They hide. And so Jesus comes to them, um, his disciples, who are cowering in fear behind a locked door. Why? Because at this time, peace in the Roman Empire is a very different thing than what we're talking about. There's a phrase, Pax Romana, which means the peace of Rome. And the peace of Rome basically means get along, otherwise we'll kill you. Okay, that's how Rome's works, and that's why it's so big. It's very simple, okay? Let's all get along, and if you don't get along, we'll kill you, all right? Pax Romana, get along or we'll kill you. I was telling the first service, that'd be a pretty good, like, sign to put up in your house, you know? Like, Pax Romana, get along or you die, right? Like, put Pax and then, like, your family's last name, right? That's our, you know, it's our law. It's the peace of our family, and here's how it works, right? And so what they had just experienced was the worst of the Pax Romana. Because what happened? What happened was uh, over concern that one of these Jewish people out of this group, the Jewish people in the Roman Empire was saying that he was king or God or something that was possibly going to rival Caesar and they were getting all worked up about it. 
And so they put it down as best as they could. They made an example out of him. They beat him and they crucified him publicly to show that no one competes with Caesar, to show this is the price that will be paid so that people can experience peace in the Roman Empire. And so the disciples knew that they could be next. They went back to the upper room and locked the door and cowered because not only was the years they devoted to following Jesus now apparently for nothing, not only was the Messiah that they thought was coming to save them dead, but they now could be hunted down. They were afraid of being crucified themselves. And so, and then they find out the body's taken. So, This is the lowest place that they could be. This is losing everything. I was thinking about this yesterday as I was reading news about the families and the people that have been suffering from these hurricanes that have been going on. Because when you watch news reports or if you know people who have been through hurricanes and endured the the devastation of that, it is entire communities that are wiped off the map. Piles of rubble under which are people, many of whom they will not find. And when you see that, and you see that there are people who lose their family, their home, their neighborhood, the community, and they have nowhere to go, right? We know what it looks like for people to be at a point where they have lost all of the things that they live for in pursuit of their goal of happiness, of life and community together, of shalom. They followed Jesus the Messiah because they thought it would bring them peace. They thought they would finally get to experience what the Jewish people have been looking for. And instead, all they found was reasons to be afraid. And they thought to lose hope. And so Jesus comes to them and he says, no, you can have peace. Because the battle that really mattered, the fight that everything depended upon, has been fought and has been won, and good news You now are reconciled with God. For the first time in history, people are made right with God. What kind of peace is better than the relief from mourning, from protection, from fear of your enemies, right? I mean, is there anything worse than those two things, right? Being afraid that you'll be attacked and killed by enemies and then getting relief from that? How about uh, mourning and loss, Losing someone and the pain that comes with having to cope with that. And Jesus says, I bring you relief from those things. I bring you a peace that is bigger than those things. And peace, shalom, is more than just not being at war. It's, it's actually the word describes what happens when there's reconciliation between two parties, which we don't see very often, right? We're not very used to seeing two parties that were at war together the next day being reconciled to one another. I experience this a lot because I have little kids, and little kids, they go to war all the time, right? But they reconcile very quickly, right? And um, our kids have friends, and they'll play together, and, uh, you know, they'll, they'll play together for the day, and they'll, like, die, like, best friends. Like, I want more than anything in the world to go hang out with this person and play with them. And then they fight, and they, like, rat each other out, like, immediately, which is the weirdest thing to me. They'll just be like, they did that, he did that, she did that. And it's like, guys, like, what? after I leave, you still have to be friends. Like, at least, you know, what, what is this about, right? Uh, but then, you know, there's always a very quick reconciliation. In fact, um, our friends, like before, there have been several times where, like, later that evening, we hear a little, little knock at the door. 
little kid knock, and, uh, and we open the door, and there's like a little note wrapped up. It's got a little ribbon around it or something, and you open it up, and it's like kid scratch, and it said like, sorry, you know, for, I know, right? Sorry for, you know, laughing at you when you fell. Sorry for, you know, pushing you down or whatever. Sorry for breaking your front teeth in half, you know? <laughs> like, like... And you, and, and, and you get these letters, and they get them, and they just go, I'm not, I'm not saying who this is, but they, they, and, they, and they, you get these letters, and, and I mean, I had to write one once. I wrote one, because I was being mean, and I was like, just send it over, you know, and I gave it to one of my kids, you know, and we wrote it in Kid Scratch, you know, sorry for being mean, but it's, like, it's amazing the ability that they have, and then immediately after that, it's like, best friends in the world, all I want to do is see that person, I'm over it. The relationship is restored. We live our lives in this pursuit of happiness. And some of the biggest points of crisis that I've seen people encounter in their lives have to do with a crisis pursuing this goal. Wanting to be happy. Wanting to be fulfilled. And getting to these different points in our life when we think it's not going to be possible, which is exactly why this kind of fulfillment and peace matters so much to us. It starts in adolescence. When people start to go, who am I going to be, right? That is, that is a crisis for a lot of people, right? Who am I going to be? What kind of person am I going to be, you know? Who do I want my friends to be? What do I want to be about? This is a big deal. This is the rest of my life. You see people do, it, do this, and you see people go through crises a lot of times, um, like after college. People, you know, they're in school. You're in school, like it feels like your whole life and you graduate college, you know. I've seen people who are like valedictorian, straight-A students, graduate college, and just in despair. Like, now what? Now what? Now, what am I going to do, right? Not who am I going to be, what am I going to do? If I want to pursue happiness, if I want to truly be happy, I'm going to get one shot at this, what am I going to devote, devote my life to in order to get that? And what if I find out that the thing I want to do doesn't make any money? Now what am I going to do? Now i got to choose between what I want to do and what pays the bills, right? This is really scary stuff. I've talked with people in this position who are suicidal because all of the stuff that they were invested in, now all of a sudden I'm the valedictorian of nothing. I'm, I'm just a person in this world, and I've got to figure out what to do with that now. And it's a crisis because we're pursuing this thing, and we don't know how to get it. People have a crisis in the middle of their lives. There's a name for this one, right? And this question is, who have I become? What have I been doing? We get halfway and we go, so this is it. I'm halfway. This is all I've done, right? Well, okay, hold on. doesn't matter. I can buy a, nice, I can buy a sports car, right? I can, I, can, I can get in really good shape. I can, look, I can look beautiful again. I can look good again. I can do it. I can do it, right? It's okay. It's not over. I've still got some time, right? There's a crisis that comes when we get halfway through and we realize I, I'm pursuing this thing and I don't know if I've made the headway that I want to or I went down the path and now I'm starting to wonder, was that really the one I should have gone down? And this is not a little crisis for many people. This is a major crisis because it's the thing that we pursue with everything. It's, it's the goal. It's the ambition of our life. People who age and continue to get older, some people do that, you know. Um, and uh, some people, like when I used to live in like Southern California, kind of Orange County area, some of those people, they never seem to age or get older, but uh, everybody else does. You age and you get older, and you start to ask yourself, what have I done with my life? 
is all of the things that I could find happiness in behind me. Will I now spend my life looking backwards? Do I have anything else to look forward to? Did I save enough? Am I healthy enough? Do I still have the possibility for happiness or regret? Nope, didn't go the way I wanted. Things weren't the way I wanted. We are so invested in this pursuit. We know what it is to want this kind of shalom, this completeness that the Jewish people also lived for. And so Jesus' good news ought to be good news. But does it seem like, good, is it probably good news to the disciples? I mean, they've already got it. They've already got the peace, and they don't seem to know it, do they? They don't seem to be living. I mean, he explained what was going to happen. He said to them, I'll go away, and all these different things are going to happen, and, and here's exactly what you can expect. Even you'll deny me, and uh, the, down, to the, down to some pretty good details. And yet, we find that they're hopeless. We find that even though they have this shalom now, that they can have it, that they now can have it, that they don't seem to be getting anything out of it, benefiting from it. They don't seem to even necessarily know that they have it. They know they need it. They know how hard life is and the despair that they're feeling, and a lot of us know what that's like. We know what it's like to be like, I need it. And as a pastor, as I've walked through so many situations with people, I would say I have just been so dismayed to see the sheer number of people who simply do not know that they need peace. The problem is often not knowing how much we need it. It's not knowing how much we need this completeness that comes from God. It's like we, we spend our lives pursuing all these other things because we think they will complete us. When really the truth is, the only way that we will ever feel complete will be in God. And the only way that anyone we ever know can hope to experience what it is to be complete and fulfilled is if they hear about and know about the shalom that they can have in God. So Jesus greets them, resurrected in a new body, saying to them, you have peace. And he goes on and he says it again. We, we read in John, in verse 21 of this, Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. And then he says, as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. This word sent is repeated so many times in the New Testament, and especially in the Gospel of John. John is all about God sending. John 1 starts with God sending his son, right? In the beginning, the word. That God sent himself to us. And then we read throughout this Gospel, as we've looked in John again and again, that Jesus is continually being sent to all these different people. And what does Jesus do? The moment he gets a disciple, what does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus? You follow him, and what does he do? He sends you, right? You're sent right with him. And sometimes he sends you out from him. So it is no surprise that he says to them, the first thing that I can tell you, and this is good news, now that I tell you that you have the peace of God, the shalom, the completeness of life, that every Jewish person would long for is this. You now will live the rest of your life, or you can live the rest of your life, being a bearer of this. You are now someone who, your life is defined by the very fact that you bring peace into the world. You bring it into the world. You are a bearer of God's peace. 
You're not just a bearer of, of like some information that you can get on a track that says like the three different points of the gospel and then if you agree with it, you can go to heaven after you die. No, you are actually the bearer of God's peace and completeness to people. And they have no hope of experiencing that without that good news. But Jesus says that they are sent in the way that he was with great power, great authority, Moments of high and great suffering and pain and moments of low. Not indicating that he's not cared about or loved by God, that God isn't behind what he's doing or empowering what he's doing. But because of the ministry. So this real flourishing, real blessing, real happiness, this real contentment, this real harmony, this real joy, this is possible. And we are the bearers of that if we experience his peace. What's difficult is that many of us think that what's wrong with the world doesn't really have anything to do with God's peace, God's completeness. We think it has to do with other things. I think, I think the majority of the things that we think are wrong with the world, that need to change or that the world needs, they come from one of two places. One, uh, other people telling us something needs to change, right? You turn on the news and it's like, this is wrong with the world. This needs to change. This is wrong with the world. This needs to get fixed. This needs to turn around. This needs to go better. This is a problem and you need to worry about it. Vote for this person and they'll fix this problem. Vote for this person and they'll defeat that person who's trying to fix the problem that you don't think is a problem, but they think is a problem and you know it's a problem and here's a problem. It is either others telling us these are the problems that the world is dealing with or we worry about the things that simply get in the way of our pursuit of happiness. I want the happiness that I'm entitled to I want my own shalom, and this is in the way of it. This person, these people, this boss, this guy I work with, this political party, this other country, this is in the way of my happiness, and so it needs to change. That's the problem with the world today. And our list of problems that need to be solved, things that need to be addressed, things that we can invest ourselves in to make the world better, are all of these other things that simply conflict with our happiness or other people's happiness rather than actually looking at the world and saying, what's really wrong with it? What's really the problem with it is simple. No one is ever going to experience the completeness that we can have in God ever since the fall of man without this shalom. This is the real problem. Not all the other stuff. And it doesn't mean that those things don't matter. Did Jesus care about the poor and the hungry and the marginalized? Did he care about slaves and women? Did he care about people who were outside of the church that were being ignored by the church? Yes. In fact, Jesus, it's really crazy, he cared about the rich people and the poor people. He cared about the slaves and the slave owners. He cared about all of those people. But it wasn't because he went around saying, as long as we can fix all these people and all these institutions and all these things, then we can all be happy. He cared about them, but he kept pointing to the fact that God and his shalom is the only way that we'll really ever, as a people, experience peace. So he says, you are sent. That word sent means apostolo, apostolos, apostle, one who is sent. 
I was talking to someone after the first service, and he said, you know, the emphasis in the kingdom of God, on, when we emphasize sending, it's always where someone is going to, right? You're sent to this place. You're sent to this thing. When the Bible talks about being sent, what's emphasized is where you're being sent from, not necessarily who you're going to. So the sent person is the one going out, going away with the message. He was also telling me that, um, that the word that's used to, you know, this apostolos, the sent in the Greek, that they would use it, not, not in the church, but in other contexts, to describe ships that were being sent out over the ocean that were fully equipped for a long journey. And I'm like, that's, that's, a pretty good, that's a pretty good word because when you get on a boat and you go out in the ocean on a long journey at that time, you're kind of stuck with what you have, right? There's not like mini-marts in the middle of the ocean, right? You load up on what you, on what you get, and if you're not well-equipped, you're going to fail, you're going to die, it will be a disaster. So to be sent means to not just go out in the same language that they would use, but it is to go out and to be fully equipped. And that's exactly what Jesus says next to them. He says, we read, and when he had said this, he breathed on them, not in a bad way, but in a good way. He breathed on them and he said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Just like you read about in creation, life is then breathed from Jesus onto the disciples. He gives them what will equip them. He gives them the Holy Spirit and he says, now you can go and you can be the ones, the bringers of this shalom, the ones who bring real actual peace to the people of the world and to the world. This was the same picture that Ezekiel saw in the valley of dead, dry bones in the Old Testament. We read about this in Ezekiel where there are these dry bones and and, and he says, oh, we read, oh, come from the four winds, O oh, breath, and breathe upon these slain, that they may live. The coming of the Holy Spirit is like wakening from the dead. Is it any surprise that the church seemed to be dead prior to this? Not really, knowing that the Holy Spirit wasn't there. Now, Jesus told his disciples before this in John 14, before he was crucified and everything, he said to them, these things I've spoken to you while I'm still with you, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will reach you all, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I've said to you. Peace I leave with you now. He's telling them, this helper, the Holy Spirit will come and what then will you have? You will have peace. My peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give it to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Jesus isn't saying to them, now you can just judge whoever you want, right? Guy doesn't fill up your gas tank all the way. You're like, sins are not forgiven. You like somebody because they gave you an extra big, like, I don't know, ice cream or something. You're like, your sins are forgiven. That's not what he means when he says, like, whatever you say, whatever you bind. What he's saying is, you know how when you guys are following me and you, like, never knew what I was going to do next, right? You know, you, I mean, imagine how frustrating it is to be a disciple, right? Three years you're following him like all your time with him, and you can tell even at the end they still have like no idea. Like if he's going to say, that's a good guy right there. Yeah, yeah, right. That, no, but that's not the, no, that guy's not, no. Is he? I don't know, right? Right? He's like, we finish each other's, they say sandwiches, you know. 
That's what it's like. To, to be with Jesus because they're like, I, I don't know, you know, like, I mean, we keep, we're trying, we're really trying here, but it's kind of hard to see where you're going sometimes, right? Jesus says, no, you're not going to have to wonder, you're not going to be confused, it's not going to be like that because you're going to have the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is actually going to give you the ability to discern things and you will see this stuff. And also the Holy Spirit is going to give you power, these things that you do that shouldn't cause great things to happen will. And it will make no sense without the explanation that the helper is here with you, helping you bring, be bearers of God's shalom to people, be sent like a person who's well-equipped. Imagine if when you were born, they closed off, they shut down the whole hospital and like the parking lots full of like news vans, you know, and, uh, you know, I don't know, vloggers or whatever now, you know, make this, like, modern. And, uh, and then they close off the whole floor, and the floor has got, the, like, high security. And they've got, like, church buses there in the parking lot. They've got, like, religious people. They've got the Pope Mobile is there, so you think the Pope's probably inside. And then your hospital room is just filled with all of these holy people. And somebody's like, what is going on? Well, I don't know if you heard, but this person that was born, God has basically given them, like an, an anointing is what the Bible calls it, he's given them this ability, this power to now be the person that brings his peace into the world. Whoa, right? Well, I think we know what their life's going to look like, right? E even if they like, don't ever actually accomplish anything, they're going to be like that kind of internet famous where you don't do anything, but you're famous because you're famous, and it's this really weird cycle that somehow seems to perpetuate itself forever. But you can guess that that person's not going to go be a carpenter. That person's not going to go be a teacher. They're not going to go work at a bank. No, that person is going to be the one that brings peace, right? Because the Holy Spirit, because this thing's been given to them. They've been empowered, right? This isn't really the way that we look at our lives. Not in this same way. Not to the same degree. And yet the truth is, Jesus is saying this helper is going to come and he's going to give you the ability to do these things that you wouldn't be able to do otherwise. There was a period of time where Ellie and I were trying to reach out to some neighbors and we were wanting to get to know them because we wanted to start this, this sort of group together of people talking and being in community together outside of the church. And we had like no idea how to, we kept getting to know these, these neighbors, they had kids that were our kids' age, and, but you know, as is often the case, wives are really good friends, and I was like, I don't think this guy wants to talk to me, you know, I'm, I don't know why, I'm like super cool guy, and I'm always, you know, just like, like I, I imagine who doesn't want to be my friend, but you know, we, just, we just don't have a lot to talk about, you know, whatever, and the, the wives are really good friends, so they're like, all right, we'll pray about it, so we pray one night about it, we, we just ask God, give us a way to be able to, I mean, if you, this is what you want us to do, if you want us to actually be in relationship with people that aren't just in the church, right, then, then help us do that. God, make it possible. And the next day, the wife is, you know, talking to Ellie, of course, and she's like, hey, so my husband, he's like, doesn't really, there's not a lot he likes to do, but he is wanting to start working out. He wants to start working out out of our garage. He has all this equipment and stuff, that, that, but, but he kind of needs some, you know, people to do it with you, otherwise you won't do it every day. So I know this is weird, but do you guys want to start working out with us? We didn't have kids at the time, and I was like, do you guys want to start working out with us? Just come over every day at like 5 o'clock, and we'll work out for like 45 minutes or whatever. And, and so every day, five days a week, for 45 minutes, we hung out, and we became very good friends. 
And we had prayed the day before, God, would you just give us some way to be able to, to do this? Now, I don't think that that just happened. I think that this is exactly what we talk about when we talk about the power of the Holy Spirit doing things and, and equipping us for things. The Holy Spirit, uh, we, we as, a, as pastors meet for a staff meeting every week for, uh, at the beginning of the week, and, and we do these things called ministry highlights, and, uh, which you'll never guess what they are because they're not self-explanatory in the name. But we do ministry highlights, and, uh, and uh, you know, the last couple weeks, I've not been, you know, cracking the whip like I should, and they go really long, but it's because we could spend hours talking about just the one thing that happened that week where we're just amazed at what God did. Now, we spend all week, I promise, trying hard to think of ways <laughs> to see God do things and, and make stuff happen and, 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 and be used by God so that we can bring God's peace into the world. And yet we're still amazed every time we talk about the things that actually happen because we look at them and we go, that wasn't me. That wasn't what we talked about. That wasn't what we were trying Whatever. It's very evident, it's very clear that there's something else happening, something else empowering this thing because we acknowledge that we're sent. We're sent to bring this peace, this reconciliation into the world. The Holy Spirit that Jesus gives the disciples has the power to do so many things. It has the power to take pain and suffering and difficulty and turn them into something that is valuable. It has the ability to take a life of suffering and make it as productive for the cause of peace, if not more productive, than a life that is easy and that is fun. And when your life is about the pursuit of happiness, that doesn't work that way. I was talking to a man this week who lost his daughter to cancer, and he said that um, what... He said that what the enemy wanted was to bury my daughter into the ground in death. But what really happened was that God planted a seed and grew something through that. That what you call death, God calls planting a seed. That is what the Holy Spirit has the power to do. And Jesus, the good news is he gives this to his disciples and says, now you have this thing. You have the power to do this thing. The difficulty about this is this. If we believe in the resurrection of Jesus, that's crazy. That's nuts. At, at the time that he was resurrected, no one believed in resurrection. We often think that. We think, oh, because it was thousands of years ago, they probably thought that like everyone turned into a ghost that looked like Casper, and then he came back, and it was this whole thing. No. Uh, in fact, if anything, they believed that the body, the physical body, was so impure and distasteful that the last thing that a spirit would do, if they even believed in a spirit, which most people didn't, the last thing a spirit would do is come back and live in the flesh. And so to believe in the bodily resurrection of Jesus, that he could just show up and be like, here I am, is crazy. And so isn't it true that if we believe that, that if we believe that this peace can happen for real and that it is much bigger than the pursuit of happiness that we're all going after, or other people are going after. Isn't it true that if we believe this thing, 
that our lives would be so radically different than the lives of people who don't believe it. I think they would be. It would only stand a reason that they would be. How can you believe in the Prince of Peace, Jesus, the Prince of Shalom, and be as materialistic as the people who think the world is going to burn up when they die? How can you have your feelings hurt as easily as people who don't believe in the resurrection? And how can you be as upset with criticism as people who don't believe in a resurrection? And how can you be as struggling to like yourself as people who say, I'm just here by accident, right? If we believe in this resurrection, if you believe that Jesus has conquered death, which he has, his disciples saw it, and they ultimately gave their lives because of how certain they were from their eyewitness of seeing him resurrected, seeing him die before that. If you truly believe in that, how different would our lives look from the lives of those who don't believe it? But often the case is not that. Often the case is that we we don't have lives that look much different at all. Jacob went up this ladder in his dream and he got a glimpse of God, being in the presence of God. And he described what that felt like as peace. And I think of that as a break from all of the things that we're desperately seeking and toiling after and having a moment of just feeling completely content with who God is and that being the greatest thing that we could live for.